Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be studying Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15 this morning. We've been working our way through Galatians for some time now, for a couple of months really, and we are now in the home stretch, if you will. We will finish our study through Galatians this month, in the month of May, and we will wrap up actually the very last Sunday of this month. And then in the month of June, we will begin a teaching series that will carry us through the summer, through the months of June and July, where we will be focused on the seven letters written to the seven churches in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. And so that will be what's coming next, our, our study for the summer. But here we are now in the last, the last two chapters, really, as I've already labeled it, the, the home stretch, if you will, of our study through Galatians. And this week we look at verses 1 through 15 Galatians chapter 5. I want to just mention as, as we get rolling and I get started here, I, I want to mention just how uh, maybe at the same time both proud and thankful I am to have staff who are able to uh, jump right in and, and fill the pulpit and carry things when I'm gone. I was out last Sunday morning. Doug filled in and did a great job preaching and uh, I've gone back actually this week, listened to the the podcast, the messages online, and there was nothing. I, I didn't find anything that I needed to fire him over, so that was good news, right? And I was listening specifically for that, just looking for something that would catch him, some kind of heresy that, no, not really, but um, really, in, in all honesty, I'm just, I'm so grateful and thankful that when I'm gone, when I'm absent, that our, our staff guys are able to fill in, and, and we don't miss a beat. You, you, you don't suffer from any lack of, of teaching or anything of that level. And, uh, you know, we're just blessed with a great staff. And along those same lines, if I can put in a plug, a reminder for you to pray, we are actually in the process right now of searching for a youth pastor. And so we have our personnel committee are working and processing through that. And, and I just want to remind you how important of a decision this is for us as a church because every time we call a staff member, we are making an investment in a man and his ministry and his family just as they're going to make a similar investment in us as a body. And so this is so important that we be led of God in this whole process. Of course, that's exactly what we're seeking to do in all of this, but we covet your prayers in that. And, and really, frankly, we need your prayers for God's guidance and his direction and all of that. So I want to call on you to remember to pray for, for uh, our church, particularly it's our personnel committee that are, that are in the process of working through all of this. And also on the other end, pray for the individual that God would lead here, that whomever it may be, that the Lord would make it so plain and obvious to him and, and, and would go really before us in that sense of preparing the way so that in the right time, that everything would just be obvious, both on our behalf and on his behalf as well, that this is the direction God is moving. And so I, I want to call on you to pray for that and the, the future of our staff as we continue down that process. All right, Galatians chapter 5 this morning. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 15. We're going to go back and study our way through this. The heart of the gospel we're calling the study of Galatians because we find the, the very heartbeat of the gospel itself presented to us again and again throughout the book of Galatians. Paul writes in verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ 
you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So in this passage this morning, we find again the very heartbeat of the gospel. As Paul is making his case here for why it is that we must trust in Christ alone, that we are saved by grace, through faith, not in any way, by any work, by anything that we have done, but it is only through faith in Christ that we that we can be saved. And so he, he's outlining for us here the, the necessity, if you will, of this faith in Christ, the necessity of trusting in his grace. On the backside of your worship guide this morning that you received when, when you came in, there's a place for you to follow along. And this isn't just for Mad Libs, you know, uh, for you to be able to fill in and just make up crazy things. Uh, and I'm speaking mostly again toward our staff there because that's what they really like to do and show me the, uh, the, the crazy things that they come up with. Uh, already this morning, this first point, uh, Doug told me that he knew the answer was free prize. So when you see this, you can just imagine if you filled in the words free prize in those blanks, uh, how that would read. But uh, that's, it's, more, it's for more than just Mad Libs, right? It's for, be able, for you to be able to follow along and, and carry, uh, carry this on throughout the week as you go back and study and look over these notes. And so we see, first of all, this morning that by grace, Christ sets us free from sin. But this freedom comes with a gospel responsibility. Not with a free prize, by the way. <laughs> but with a gospel responsibility. And this, this, this idea of a gospel responsibility is the idea that when we receive Christ through faith, the grace that is given to us sets us free from our sin. We are no longer enslaved. We are no longer trapped in that private prison that's created by our sin. We are set free from that. But the freedom that we're given in Christ, the freedom that we have, comes with a gospel responsibility. Now, I've, I've called this a gospel responsibility because I want us to understand that the responsibility that we have is not toward a moral way of living. The responsibility that we have is not toward following a set of rules, but it's a responsibility toward the gospel, the message of the gospel itself. The responsibility that we have is that we would live trusting fully in the hope that is in Jesus, that we would trust in the gospel and not in our goodness, but in the goodness of Jesus who gave himself for us on the cross. And that with that, we would understand the responsibility given to us to share that message with others. There are a lot of people who say, well, Christ has set us free, 
from sin, and now our responsibility is to live according to the law. Our responsibility is to live a good moral life. Now, hear me when I say this. It is essential that we would walk in the way of righteousness. It's essential that we would try to to grow in our sanctification is the word that I would use, meaning our holiness. It's essential that we would wage war against the sin in our lives that would cause us to stumble and fall again and again. But the very, the very essence of what Paul is writing about here, the very essence of his message is the idea that you are not saved so that you would now be a better person. In fact, that's, that's at the very core of what he's preaching and teaching against. You're not saved by grace so that you can be good. You're saved by grace because you cannot be good on your own. And in that we find the heartbeat of the gospel. And so the responsibility that we've been given is that we would both live like this message is something that we really believe, that we embrace it with our whole being, that we center our lives around this truth, and also that we would share this truth with others. So it's a gospel responsibility. It's not a moral responsibility. It's not an ethical responsibility. It's not a financial responsibility that we've been given. It's a gospel responsibility that we have because of our faith in Christ. And so this responsibility that comes with our freedom, I want us to see how this works itself out. And Paul really goes to great lengths here in this passage we're studying to outline for us this responsibility and the way that this works in our lives. And so essentially, if you, if you just glance at the structure of these 15 verses, you find four paragraphs, right? Verse 1 is a paragraph in and of itself. Verses 2 through 6 7 through 12, and 13 through 15. And there's a basic outline, a basic form here that we can follow where we get our points for this morning that, that what Paul is doing is he's laying out for us what this gospel responsibility looks like. And so I want us to see this as we examine the freedom that we have in Jesus this morning. The first point of this outline Paul gives us is this, is the purpose of our freedom. The purpose of our freedom that Jesus set us free so that we could live in freedom, no longer enslaved to our sin. And so he writes in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. What is the purpose of the freedom that we've been given in Christ? The purpose of our freedom is not so that we would now follow a set of rules or that we would that we would adhere to a particular religion or that we would follow the law. The purpose of freedom is freedom itself. Which is why he writes, it is for freedom that you have been set free. The reason Jesus set you free is because there was no other way for you to be set free than by grace through faith in him. There was no other way for you to earn or deserve or work your way toward freedom. There was no way for you to unlock the gate to the prison that had you enslaved, the prison of your sin. And so Jesus set you free first and foremost so that you would be free. So that you would be free. So why would we return to what he describes here as the yoke of slavery? Why would we go back and live in slavery to sin? Why would we turn to the things of this world to satisfy us when Jesus has set us free from all of that? So the purpose of our freedom is essentially this. It's 
freedom itself. The reason that Jesus has set us free is so that we could be free because there was no other way. There was no other way for us to be free than for Jesus to pay the price, for him to ransom us, if you would, from the, from the, the trap, the, the, the prison of our sin. But once we come to faith in Christ, once we experience this freedom, there are often two, two traps that we fall into. Two, two classic pitfalls, if you will, that we fall into in regard to freedom. And really, there, it's the two extremes. Once we, once we are living in this freedom that we have in Jesus, there are one of two extremes that we tend toward. One of those is what I would call license. And what I mean by license is that because of the freedom that we have in Jesus, we live as though we can do anything and we can get away with anything and that our freedom in Christ, the grace that we've received, is a license to do whatever we want. Like I can do anything I want. I can, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a human hedonism, right? That we can do whatever we want. We can fulfill our inner desires. We can chase after anything we want because in reality, God just wants you to be happy anyway, right? That's what he wants is just for you to be happy and for you to, be, to feel all warm and loved and good on the inside. And so you can do whatever you want. And, and at the end of the day, Jesus is going to forgive you because he's paid for all of that. It's, the, it's this, this pitfall, this, this sin of license that says, I can, I can live however I want because God's going to forgive all of my wrong. And so we tend toward license is what I'm calling it, right? And the other side, the other extreme, if you will, the other pitfall is legalism. And legalism says, no, there is an absolute moral standard. There is a perfect set of law and rules that we have to follow. And not only do you need to trust in the grace, but now here's, here's the rule book for how you should live too. Not only do you need the gospel, not only do you need faith in Christ, but you got to follow the rules. you got to play by the right rules in order to be saved. And so the, these two extremes, these two margins, license and legalism, the reality is that the truth is, is in the middle. Does God want us to live in a moral, upright way? Absolutely yes. Because it's the best way to live. Because it's the way that he's laid out for us. Does God want us to honor him and bring glory to him by turning, rejecting the sinful, fallen ways of this world and instead trusting and following his way of obedience? Absolutely yes. But you need to hear this. Salvation will never be found in the law. It will never be found in legalism. Similarly, on the other side of that coin, salvation will never be found in casting off all restraint, doing whatever you want, pursuing your every heart's desire, because Jesus has set you free from the desires of your heart. You can't trust your heart because your heart is deceptively wicked. And the desires of your heart will lead to your ruin. So Jesus didn't set you free so that you can do whatever you want and know that it's already bought and paid for. He set you free so that you would no longer chase after all of that. So the truth isn't in, in these extremes of license or legalism. The truth is, is in the center, in the middle. By grace, trusting in Jesus, but also acknowledging the gospel responsibility that we have 
because of the freedom that we've been given. So the purpose of our freedom, first and foremost, is that we could live in freedom, no longer enslaved to our sin. And the last thing I would say about this point is this, is that living in this freedom in all reality is much harder than you might imagine, right? Living in this right balance with the right tension between license and legalism, finding this this place where we are walking by faith, trusting in grace, and yet at the same time living in the way of righteousness and in the hope of the righteousness that is ours in Jesus, finding that balance and that tension in our lives is, is actually more of an art than a science. It, it, it's not that easy in all reality. Because if it was easy, uh, frankly, I wouldn't have to preach about it. Paul wouldn't be writing about it. We would just be doing it, right? It's much more, it's much more difficult. And I don't, mean to, I don't mean to oversimplify it and, and make it as though this isn't a challenge. This is a challenge for us. This will be a challenge for us until the day Jesus either calls us home or comes again, that we will wrestle with finding that right balance where we want to do what is right, but not believing that doing what is right will save us. Last weekend, the the reason I wasn't here is because I was running in the uh, Oklahoma City uh, Memorial Marathon. I ran the half marathon last Sunday morning. And so right about, what time is it now? Right about, yeah, right about, I was finished by now, thank the Lord. Right about now, you know, my legs and my knees were killing me. They were aching. Uh, but we started out the race uh, last Sunday morning about 6.30, and I was in uh, the, the slow group, right, at the back of the pack. Uh, and, and I'm okay with that. I, uh, my, my goal, I had two real goals in the race, okay? The first goal was don't die because your kids need a daddy, right? I mean, that's a good thing. Uh, And and my second goal was, and I didn't really tell many people this second goal because I didn't know how realistic it really was, but I'll go ahead and confess to you. My second goal was finish the half marathon before the guy who won the full marathon, uh, which I didn't do, by the way. And so I'm in the home stretch of the race, and all along the course of the race, there are signs. People are holding up signs. People are there to cheer you on. And there were, there were some really funny signs. Some of my favorite signs, uh, several places along the race, people were holding signs that said, worst parade ever. And those were pretty good. That was pretty funny. Uh, there, was one, there was one person who had a yard, a, a really large uh, sign, rather, in their yard, and it said, you're running better than our federal government. Uh, that was pretty funny. <laughs> Uh, lots of, you know, lots of people along the way cheering you on, offering words of encouragement, but one in particular that it was actually a, a business that had a, a, large, uh, a large business building along class, and I don't even remember what business it was, but they had basically, for about a, a stretch of about 100 yards, they had put up the same thing again and again, like the same sign over and over. And the, ba- and the sign said this, basically, if it was easy, we would be doing it, right? Run, if it was easy, we would be doing it. And sometimes, you know, that idea, right, I, I think is important that we would, that we would understand and kind of hold on. If, if living with this tension and this balance were easy, then we would be doing it, Right? We, Paul wouldn't have to write about it. I wouldn't have to preach a sermon about it. If, if living with this balance was just simple, then we would just naturally do it. But instead, we wrestle with this. We struggle with this. We have to work to find the right balance and the right tension in all of that. 
And the point is that we would not that we would not be drawn to either of the extremes, the license or the legalism, right? So when we find ourselves in those, in those, uh, those, those boundaries, those margins, we need, to, we need to recognize that and remember that, no, there's more of a tension here. There's, it's not overly simple. We can't just, you know, dumb this down. It, it, this is tough. This is hard work, figuring out where is the balance in all of this. Just to kind of finish the story, I'll tell you just this much, just to kind of finish out the story. Uh, I'm in the home stretch of the race. I can see the finish line. I've got about 200 yards to go running down Broadway. If you're familiar with Oklahoma City, I'm at about uh, between 9th and 8th on Broadway, and the finish line is like around 6th and Broadway. And so... uh, in one side on the northbound lanes of Broadway are the half marathon people and there's just a sea of us, right? Just a, literally thousands of us. And then on the right side is the section that was marked off for the marathon runners. And it's empty, you know, it's just a stretch of road. Because at this point I've run 13 miles, that's pretty good, that's a feat in and of itself, but the full marathon people have done the whole 26. And so I'm within the sight of the, of the end and I have no idea where the marathon runner the winner of the marathon is in all of this. And the next thing you know, here comes this motorcycle officer, just whoop, 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 you know, just driving by and thinking to myself, what's he doing? And then I realize what's coming, you know, and I think, oh, I'm not going to get it. And the next thing I know, here comes a Suburban with the, the memorial logo real big on the side and some guys like hanging out. And then here he comes like a flash of lightning, you know, running at a full sprint, the, the, the guy who won the marathon. Don't know who he is. I'd like to shake his hand because he was booking it at 26 miles. And I was thinking to myself, don't die. It's just pain. Push through it, you know. A uh, little bit humbling, nonetheless. Uh, glad that I made it and glad that I'm here to talk about it today. Uh, it has nothing to do with the sermon, but I just wanted to finish that out. There you go. Back to the point, right? So the first thing that we see is that the purpose of our freedom is freedom itself. We have been set free so that we would live in freedom. Secondly, we see this, the hope of our freedom. In the second paragraph, the second point, really, of of what Paul is describing for us here, that the hope of our freedom, and the hope of our freedom is this, that now by faith, our righteousness comes through hoping in Christ and not through trusting in our works according to the law. So now by, by faith, our righteousness comes through hoping in Jesus. That's exactly what he says here, right? Verse 5, he tells us that we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There are several uh, phrases that I think are really key in this paragraph. The first one is uh, this. He says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He's talking about if you accept circumcision, which really here is a symbol of the law. So what he's saying is if you trust in Christ, he's writing to Gentiles here, right? People who were not Jewish. So if you would trust in Christ and then you would be circumcised as a sign of the law, a sign that you're going to follow the law and the covenant, what he's saying is that Christ is of no advantage to you. If you're trusting in Jesus, but then also trusting in yourself, he says then the gospel is is no good to you because you can't have it both ways. You can't trust in Jesus and trust in yourself and your own works. It has to be one or the other. And so if you would trust in Christ, then you have to, you have to trust fully in Christ and reject the idea that there's anything you can do to earn 
your way of salvation. And if you would trust in your works, if you would trust in the law, then the gospel is of no advantage to you. In fact, he goes on to say, literally, verse 4, you are severed from Christ. The word severed there means that you are alienated, that you are separated, that you have cut off ties from Christ. And so if you would trust in your works, if you would look to yourself and the things that you can do to earn your salvation, then you are cut off from Christ. You are severed from the gospel. Similarly, he says, not only that, but then he goes on to say in the same verse that you have fallen away from grace. Now, this doesn't mean fallen away in the sense of losing your salvation, because the reality is if you're trusting in your works, then you've never really had salvation to begin with. So the point isn't that you could fall away, that you could lose your salvation. The point is, if you were ever trusting in yourself, then you've never really repented and turned to Christ. And anyone who repents and turns to Christ, but then goes back toward that, that margin of legalism, is, is making the, that, that mistake of mixing the truth with the lie, of trying to believe in both Jesus and their own works. And what Paul is saying is, you can't do both. You simply cannot have it both ways. Instead, he writes in verse 5, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For the hope of righteousness. The righteousness that we have, the righteousness that we're called to live in, is something that we hope in, something that we believe in, something that we trust in, but it's not something that we earn our way toward. It's the righteousness of Jesus that's given to us as a free gift of grace. And so we have to live with that tension again. And our hope is in Jesus and his work on the cross. By faith, our righteousness comes through hoping in Christ, not through trusting in our works according to the law. Third, we see this, the confidence of our freedom. So we've seen the purpose of our freedom, the hope of our freedom. Now, the confidence of our freedom, that you can be confident of this, that the gospel obliterates any hope that you might have of earning your way toward God's grace. The gospel absolutely obliterates any hope that you might have in earning your way toward God's grace because he says in verse 7 through 12, he says that who hindered you from obeying this truth? In other words, what lie has kept you from understanding this truth? The lie itself would be the lie that you could trust in Jesus and then also that you must follow the law. He, he's saying that our confidence comes through faith in Christ and not through our works. And so that's why he says in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And what is the, what other view? That, that, we wouldn't, that we wouldn't believe the lie that it's the gospel plus anything that saves us, that it's faith in Christ alone that would save us. And so the confidence that we have through the gospel, the confidence that we have through hoping in Christ's righteousness is that we will be saved from our sin, as Paul writes in, in Colossians, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. According to his mercy. And so the confidence of our freedom is the idea that we can never earn it or deserve it. And can I tell you, Paul even says this here, that this idea this idea that there's nothing you can do to earn your way to salvation is offensive. It's an offense, right? It's an offense to that part of us that wants to be good enough. This is offensive to that, that, that desire within us, that, that zeal that we might have to do things on our own, that 
independent spirit that wants to say, God, I don't need you and I don't need anyone else. I want to do this. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to make my way on my own. And the reality is that the gospel preaches you could never do it on your own. In fact, the gospel is an offense to the idea of self-reliance because it says that yourself is worthless and there's nothing good that you bring to the table. And if that doesn't offend, then the reality is then, uh, then you haven't really understood the gospel, I believe. If, if, it, if there's not a part of you that has to surrender that, that willful desire of self-dependence and self-rule even that we have, then I wonder, have you ever really surrendered to Christ? Because there has to be a moment of surrender. There has to be a moment where we, where we willfully acknowledge that on our own, we will never be enough. That we, we need the gospel. We need Jesus. The confidence that we have in our freedom. And then finally this is the opportunity of our freedom. So we've seen that there's a purpose in our freedom. There is a hope in our freedom. There is confidence in the freedom that we've been given. And then also there is an opportunity that we've been given in the freedom that Christ brings. But the gospel sets us free, but this freedom does not release us to our desires. Rather, it calls us to something much greater than our desires. The opportunity that we have is to serve one another in love. The opportunity that we have is to, is to demonstrate, to give witness to the gospel in the way that we live. And so he writes in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. There it is again, license. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to do whatever you want, as a license to sin. Rather, he says, through love, serve one another. And then verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. He doesn't literally mean one word, but one one thought, one idea, right? That's the, the point of the word. And then what we would expect this to say, the whole law is fulfill, fulfilled in one word. What we would expect this to say is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? L give God everything you have. Trust in him fully. But instead, what is, it, what is it that he says? I want you to notice this. Look in your Bible and, and see this. What does he say? The whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, wait a minute. Shouldn't our love for God be first? Shouldn't he be telling us that the whole law is fulfilled when we love God first and foremost? But here's the truth about loving your neighbor as yourself. Here's the truth about loving others in the way that he's calling us to. You can never love others the way that you love yourself. You can never love others with this kind of love unless the love of Jesus has first radically affected your life. You can never hope to love someone else with the same kind of love that we naturally have toward ourselves, the same kind of love that drives us to want and seek our desires even at great cost to ourselves, the same love that would cause us to stumble and fall into the sins of license and legalism, the same love for self that wants to exalt ourselves and deny the work of Christ, the same love of ourselves that takes offense at the idea that we could never be enough. We can never love someone else with that kind of love unless the gospel has first radically changed our hearts. And so what he's saying here is that 
we give witness to the gospel, we give witness to the transforming power of Christ in us, when we take this opportunity to not only live in freedom, but to accept the gospel responsibility that we've been given. And how does that show itself? How does that play itself out? Well, he says it pretty plainly here. Through love, serve one another. He goes on to write in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Think of all the times that our lives could be described with verse 15 rather than verses 13 and 14. Think of all the times that our lives could be described as having competition with one another, striving against each other, working against, talking about, gossiping against. Think of the number of times that our lives are marked by the, that selfish desire to exalt ourselves at the expense of everyone else around us. He describes it here as biting and devouring one another, which is a really graphic way to describe, but it's, it's exactly accurate, right? That the, the way that we live when we live for ourselves is that we would consume everyone else around us as if they were there for our pleasure, as if everyone else existed to serve our will and our wants and our desires. But instead, the gospel calls us to a greater way. The gospel doesn't just release us to our desires, but rather it calls us to something that's much greater than our desires. And what is that? It's the gospel responsibility that we have. That we would live in freedom and that we would not use our freedom as a license to sin. That we would not use our freedom as a a legal set of laws that we must follow, but rather that we would live in freedom so that we could, in love, serve one another. That's how we demonstrate When you willingly live with the faults, the mistakes, the failures that others have, when you willingly forgive freely to others around you, when you're ready to not talk evil against them, when you're not striving to try to be better than everyone else or gain a leg up on everyone else, but rather when you willingly humble yourself and you serve others around you, then you demonstrate that you really believe that you understand the gospel. In love, serve one another. Practically speaking, how do we know that we've been changed by the gospel? It changes the way that we live with one another. Yes, it affects our relationship with God. Absolutely. Our our reality is forever changed. Our standing before God. We are justified, Paul writes, even to the Galatians. That we are justified before God by faith. But if we are justified by faith, then it ought to change the way that we live with each other. Did you know that Paul is not inventing a new word here? He's not, he's not creating a new teaching here. In his own way, in his own words, he's just restating what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, where Jesus says, a new command I give to you. You've heard the old commands, right? But Jesus says, I have a new command for you, and it's this, that you would love one another. And he says in verse 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How do we demonstrate to the world around us that we are followers of Jesus, that we have been transformed by the gospel? Well, Paul writes it this way, in love, serve one another. So how we live 
demonstrates what we believe about this freedom. So today I wonder, what proof, what evidence is there in the way that you live, that you have trusted in the gospel, that you have accepted this gospel responsibility that comes along with your freedom? Can we look at your life and can we say, there it is, there's the proof of their freedom. There's the proof that they, that they, have, they have trusted fully in God's grace. What is the evidence that Paul and Jesus himself point us to is that in love that we would serve one another. I want to ask if you would bow your head and close your eyes this morning. and I want to call us into a time of prayer and reflection. A time where we can, for a few moments, shut out all of the things that are going on around us. All of the distractions, all of the, all of the competition, all of the... Uh, all of the things happening around us. Listen, I'm not asking, does your husband or your wife do this? I'm not asking, do your children do this? I'm not asking uh, what other people do and, and, 